0: Chapter 7, that's the passage we're particularly looking at. You'll also want to uh, have your outline there. That's got uh, some of those tables we looked at last week to help you understand what's going on in Jeremiah. It's got the reading guide, all that sort of thing. But now I'll pray for us as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that all scripture is breathed by you and so is your very words. And we thank you that because of that it is useful for teaching us, for correcting us, for rebuking us, for training us in righteousness, so that we might be truly equipped for every good work. And so Father, we pray that as we look at this part of your scriptures, that you might do that work in us tonight, to teach us and do all those other things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, You mightn't realise this, but uh, preachers like me can be quite insecure people. Uh, And you can actually preach a lot And sometimes wonder whether actually anyone has listened, anyone's understood, anyone's been changed, all those sort of things. Sometimes preachers can go through times of doubt. And uh, the Christian publishing industry has worked this out and worked out that they can feed that insecurity. And again, you mightn't realise this, but every year there are hundreds of books written just for preachers to make preachers feel bad about their preaching. Uh, and they have titles like how to preach to transform the lives of your congregation and how to see transformative change they've always got that word in it transformative how to see transformative change in the life of people and all this sort of stuff and some of them are really helpful actually a couple of them are really helpful some are useless and most are somewhere in between Uh, but when I was going through Bible college there was a book by a guy called Haddon Robinson Uh, you wouldn't have heard of him but anyway he wrote a book on preaching I don't know if he was much of a preacher himself I never heard him preach but anyway he wrote a book on it Uh, and he said a key thing for preachers is to make sure you grab people right from the start and he talks about grabbing people by the ears to make them listen and this is what he said I'll read it out he says an introduction should command attention when a minister steps behind the pulpit he dare not assume that his congregation sits expectantly on the edge of the pews waiting for his sermon I'm sure that's the case in history, he's never been to St. George North, he doesn't know that you guys are all sitting expectantly on the edge of your seats, if not your pews, uh, waiting for the sermon, at least when I'm preaching. No, uh, but um, but the the point he's made as a preacher, you know, might tell a joke, might raise a question, might do what they've got to do to to say to people, come with me, come and listen to what I've got to say. Uh, I could not help but be struck this week as I read through the first 25 chapters of Jeremiah again, uh, I mean, this is the, that's a summary of all his preaching. It's sort of it's the collected works of Jeremiah, the first 25 chapters of the book. And I couldn't help but be struck, but obviously he had never read a book on preaching, uh, because his method was go and stand in the gates of the temple and say, hear the word of the Lord, and then smack. There you go. No buttering up. No, hey, you might want to listen to me. I'm actually a nice guy. It's just you are sinners and you need to repent. That's what Jeremiah did. Uh, he did not think, interestingly, he did not think it was his job to butter people up. He didn't think it was his job to win a hearing for the word of the Lord. And there's actually a message for that in us as we hear sermons, that, that actually the very fact that the word of God is being preached should make us sit expectantly on the edge of our pews, irrespective of whether the, the preacher is particularly interesting or not. The word of God is being preached and that was Jeremiah's attitude. His thought was my job is to confront you with the truth of God's word. Your job is to listen. Simple as that. Now come with me, you remember last week we saw God's call on Jeremiah back in chapter 1 where God set him aside as a youth to bring his word not just to Judah but to the the whole world, to the nations. Well now in chapters 2 to 25 we have, like I said, his collected sermons and the, the difficulty for us in reading them is they're not in order. So it's not like he preached this one, then the next Sunday, this one, then the next Sunday, this one. They're more collected by topic and so they cover that whole period of his ministry. So if you look on your outline, you remember that table, I've put it there again, of all the kings in the time when Jeremiah was, uh, was doing his work. So sometimes we're told in a part which king was in charge at a particular time and that helps us understand when it was. Other times we're not told and we just sort of have to take an educated guess. So here Jeremiah just goes straight for it and that's what he does in all of the sermons, it's not like this is the hard sermon in Jeremiah 7, I've picked one of the nice ones with all its talk of corpses and that sort of thing, it's like that the whole way through for these chapters because his point was God's people at this time have been rejecting God for too long. God's people have been rejecting God's word for too long. So Jeremiah's job in speaking God's word to his people was not to sort of gently encourage people. There were other prophets at other time who did that. It wasn't to subtly raise questions for people, to have them think about it over the next few weeks and make a decision then. It wasn't any of that. His job was to rebuke them and then to pronounce God's judgment upon them. And so if you read all his sermons, uh, hopefully you read up to chapter 6 this week. And thank you for those people who've been emailing me and a couple of people emailing questions as you've been reading through. And feel free to do that. You'll see the reading guide on the end there up to chapter 14 uh, this week. Uh, But what you'll see is Jeremiah uses all sorts of different examples. He has all sorts of different moments that he's speaking to. But in the end, the message to Israel and Judah is pretty similar right through. It's this, God has been wonderfully faithful you have been horribly faithless that was his message to Israel and Judah at that time God has kept his covenant with you even though you don't deserve it but you have not kept your side of the covenant with God even though God saved you and rescued you and gave you this land to live in you have rejected God and especially he says to God's people you have done the thing that God hates more than anything else and what is that thing you have turned away from the one true and living God to worshipping idols. And so as you read these sermons, it's full of sarcasm. He talks about the fact you worship trees, and you worship rocks, and what he's saying is, that thing you call a God over there is just something you've carved out of a tree. That's all it is, a lump of wood. How stupid is it to bow down and worship a lump of wood? And so he talks about worshipping things of stone and wood, And God calls that through Jeremiah, he says, that idolatry is like adultery. That's what it is. You have prostituted yourself, is the language he uses, to other gods. And through Jeremiah, God says, that has then led you to all sorts of other immorality and all sorts of other ungodliness. And especially as a nation, God condemned them for the fact that instead of doing what his law demands, which is caring for the poor and the widow and the orphan... They have abused the poor and the widow and the orphan. And so in his preaching, Jeremiah was calling God's people to repentance. He kept saying, turn back to God if you want to live in the land, turn back to God. But there was another part of his preaching that was basically saying, it's too late. God's judgment is coming. So as I said I could have picked any of those sermons to focus on, I've probably picked the most famous which is chapter 7 and it's called the Temple Sermon and you'll see why. We're not told when he preached this but there's a reference to it later on in chapter 26 that suggests it was probably during the time of Jehoiakim which was when, if you remember last week, Jeremiah was really hated more than any other time so it was a pretty low time for Jeremiah when he preached this so let's look at it together come with me chapter 7 of Jeremiah God says to him in verse 2 stand in the gate of the house of the Lord and there call out this word hear the word of the Lord all you people of Judah who enter through these gates to worship the Lord and his message was there in verse 3 correct your ways and your deeds and I will allow you to live in this place So straight away you can see why it gets called the temple sermon, Uh, God said basically Jeremiah what I want you to do is go and stand at the entrance to the temple and as the people come in to worship me and they're carrying their their lambs and their goats to sacrifice at the temple, as they come in say to them you need to repent, go out and fix the way you're living if you want to stay in the land I've given you. Now immediately I think why go to the temple and preach this? Do you know what I mean? It's not like preaching to the converted, isn't it? You know, know, these are the people who are on board already. These are the people who are saying, we're bringing a lamb to sacrifice to Yahweh. We're people who want to worship Yahweh. Why not go to the pagan temples, which were basically brothels? Why not go to the brothels and preach there to the sinners? Why not go to the marketplace where people were stealing money off one another? Why not go there out where the sinners are and preach to them rather than to the religious people in the temples? Well, Jeremiah did that as well. He went to those places as well but he went to the temple because he wanted to confront the two massive problems that were in the middle of the life of God's people that were the biggest heart of their issue and those two problems were firstly false assurance, a false belief that everything was going to be all right and then secondly and related religious hypocrisy you see, despite all his preaching, despite all his warnings, lots of people were ignoring Jeremiah. And what they kept saying was, we are the people of God. We are the people of God's promises. And and, and God has always forgiven us, so why won't he do it again? And then the main reason they said what that was, they said, we've got the temple. And God will never let anything happen to his temple. So whenever we stay near the temple, and ever we do our religious thing at the temple... All your prophecies about God judging us are rubbish, and we're not listening to you. God's not going to let anything happen to us. And you see it there in verse 4, look there. He says, Do not trust deceitful words chanting, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. I think he's purposely copying them. They were repeating it like a mantra, it was sort of like a magic formula for them. If we just say over and over again, We've got the temple of the Lord, we've got the temple of the Lord then God will not let anything bad happen to us. But Jeremiah says, no, they are deceitful words. Because God is not interested in people who put on a show of religion. God is interested in changed hearts that lead to changed lives. Jeremiah's message is, don't trust in your religion to save you. You see, their hypocrisy was, all week they would be worshipping other gods. On Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, they were there bowing down to Baal. They were making sacrifices to other gods. They were, they were going and sleeping around. They were doing whatever else. And all week, they were just sort of getting on with sinning, lying, stealing, sexual immorality. But then they would come to the temple at the end of the week and speak the magic words the priest told them to say. And they'd bring their sheep to be sacrificed. And then they'd say, okay, good, that's got God off their backs. Let's get back to it and they'd walk outside again, it made no difference in the rest of their lives. And he summarises it there at verse 9, look at verse 9, he says, do you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods that you have not known? Then do you come and stand before me in this house called by my name and say, we are delivered, so we can continue doing all these detestable acts. God will not be mocked, That is what Jeremiah was preaching to the people of God at that time. God will not be mocked. Don't you dare think that a front of religion will turn aside the righteous anger of God. That was Jeremiah's message to the people of God at that time. He points out the same problem down at verse 21. Look down there. He says, this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel says, add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. He says, he says, don't bring your sheep to me, you may as well have a barbecue and eat them. Because they're not doing you any good when you bring them to be sacrificed, just have a good time together. Have a barbie, eat it, because I'm not, I'm not accepting it. And then he says, at verse 22, he says, when I first brought you out of Egypt, did I immediately say to you, what I want you to do is be all religious and go to the temple and make sacrifices? No, I said, obey me and then I'll be your God, verse 23, and you will be my people you must follow every way I command you so that it may go well with you. So you saying, you might as well go and eat your sacrifices, because if you have not worked out that the essence of following me is not doing religious stuff, but is instead loving me with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, and then loving your neighbour as yourself. If you haven't worked that out, if you think you can ignore me for the rest of the week and then your sacrifice is going to mean something, well, you've missed the point. And you see, inside the temple all pious and obedient. Outside, look at the description, verse 17, he says, don't you see how they behave in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem? The sons gather wood, the fathers light the fire and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven and they pour out drink offerings to other gods so that they provoke me to anger. The Queen of Heaven was a pagan fertility god. Every culture had their version. It's really interesting when you look at uh, anthropology and archaeology. Just about every culture on earth has, has felt the need to pray to a female god of fertility... Uh, And part of it is this this thought that there must be a a female God who will bless us with crops and and who will allow us to have children. So she had names like Ishtar and Ashtoreth and Venus in different cultures. But part of that worship, it sounds weird to us, was making cakes with the symbol of the goddess on them. And you might have read, has anyone ever read in the prophet Hosea, chapter 3, it's my favorite verse in the Bible, where it talks about how they turned away from me and ate the sacred raisin cakes? It's one of the most obscure verses in the Bible, but that's what it's talking about. The the it was a way of committing idolatry. He was saying, i mean it was the way you worshipped this female god." And it's interesting how that idea of worshiping a female deity is so pervasive that very early on in the time of Christianity, the church syncretized it in, and there you have the worship of Mary, and the veneration of Mary. That's a pagan practice that's what it is, that's why you mustn't allow it and sadly it happens in so many branches of the church but you see his point here is you come to the temple and you pay me lip service, you say we're with you Yahweh, here's our sacrifice but during the week the whole family is getting together and worshipping these false gods and so God says my judgment is coming, don't think your so-called religion will save you, this temple is not my house anymore. Look at verse 11, he says, has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your view? Yes, I too have seen it. So God is saying, this is my house but you use it like your sort of cubby house to hide in, thinking I'm going to protect you and while you're in there you're just planning your next bit of sin. That will not do. Please hear the message of Jeremiah, God hates all sin but he has a special wrath for reserved for religious hypocrites. God hates religious hypocrisy. Well that was God's word to them. What about us today? Well if you are not seeing how this passage is relevant to us, I may as well give up preaching and go and read some of those books. Uh, But before we get to us, I actually want to see something even more important than us. I want to see how this passage points us forward to Jesus. You see this theme of not trusting in a temple made of stone actually became a major theme of all the Old Testament prophets. You cannot contain God in a building and they should have known that from the very beginning, they should have known it from the moment David said I want to build God a house in Jerusalem. You can't keep God in a building, God is everywhere. The the temple was always meant to be symbolic of the fact that God is dwelling with his people and when Jesus came he made that abundantly clear. Because when he came to the temple, by then it was a new rebuilt one because the one Jeremiah was talking about had been wiped out by God's judgment through the Babylonians. But as soon as they built the new temple, exactly the same problems came up. The Jewish people said, We've got the temple no God's happy with us nothing's going to happen and then they started that religious hypocrisy all over again and you read about in the gospels don't you You read about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the way they paid lip service to God when their hearts were dark and in Matthew's gospel you might have thought as we read Jeremiah 7 11 you might I thought I've heard those words before about the temple being a den of robbers it's because Jesus quoted them and Jesus when he came into the temple he said you have turned my father's house into a den of robbers and he's quoting Jeremiah 7 But I got us to look at John's Gospel before, so please flick over there now. Come with me to John chapter 2, to our New Testament reading from earlier on. We read this famous story from verse 13, where Jesus walks into the temple and he sees that they've turned it into a marketplace. And in his anger, he turns over all their tables and their money gets scattered all over the place. That's how to upset people, scatter their money. Uh, And as he does that, they say to him, what gives you the right to do that, Jesus? What gives you the right to do that? Prove you have the right by showing us a sign. And look at what Jesus says at verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this sanctuary. That's another word for temple, this temple. And I will raise it up in three days. Now they don't get it. Uh, they, they, they sort of think hey, hang on don't be stupid this has taken 46 years to rebuild this temple and we're still not finished and, and you're going to build it in three days but they missed the point Jesus is saying you can tear down this stone building because it's obsolete because you don't need to come to a temple to meet with God when God is already here namely in Jesus himself you can tear down this temple because there's a new temple now there's a new place to meet With God. And it tells us where at verse 21, look there with me, it says, But he was speaking about the sanctuary or the temple of his body. God dwells in his Son. That's why buildings are irrelevant. It's why at the moment, well you can't go in, there's fencing all around, you can go into the church building around the corner and it's all been ripped open, it's all the floor, it's a great place to go in and have a look actually but you can't but anyway, (laughs) all the floorboards are up and walls have been knocked out and it doesn't matter because that's not a holy building, we just want to do what's best for it to enable people to meet. That's what a church building is for. You see God dwells in his son, if you want to come and meet with God you don't come to a temple and offer your sacrifice, you come to Jesus the one who has made the sacrifice once and for all for you by dying and then being rebuilt three days later in his resurrection and so for those people back in John 2 they came to him physically they stood in front of Jesus and listened to him speak how do we come to Jesus we come by faith as the word of God is read and preached we believe it and we trust it and we meet with God and we find forgiveness and we find salvation and we find eternal life you don't need a temple Jeremiah knew that Jesus proved that you don't need a temple because you meet with God and find his forgiveness in Jesus so that's my first point for us but now secondly we need to hear the warning of Jeremiah against religious hypocrisy just like they did don't we because as we come to the true temple by faith to Jesus the danger of hypocritical religion is just as real for us Whenever I read Jeremiah 7 I cannot help but hear ringing in my ears the words of Jesus that I find the scariest in the whole Bible. And I've printed them on your outline just above the little table there, take it out, just listen to these words of Jesus. Not everyone who says to me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you, depart from me you lawbreakers. Aren't they the scariest words in the Bible? I think they are. When we stand before the throne of God in heaven, when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, we will be standing there And there will be some people we went to church with, hopefully a lot of them. But then we'll look around and we'll say, hang on, where's Fred? And and where's Jeff? They they were at church every week. And they came and took communion, even when we had communion. And they they sang really loudly at church. And, And they even taught kids' church. And we will say to Jesus, where are they? And he will say, I never knew them and they never knew me. And we'll say, well, what what were they doing? And he says, "I, I don't know. Well, he does know. We know the lure of hypocritical religion, don't we? We've seen it too many times in others, and to be perfectly frank, sometimes in ourselves. The person who comes and takes communion, the person who nods approvingly during the sermon the person who really gets into the music and sings really loudly and passionately but then goes home and watches pornography on their computer or then goes to work and embezzles the accounts or who just gets on with their greedy life with no concern for other people but they really love the worship time but it makes no difference out there or even more subtle who comes on a Sunday and talks the talk then just lives their life like it makes no difference week to week and in their day-to-day decision they just live like any other non-believer would you are saved by faith but true faith will always work itself out in obedience to God and his word the faith that saves is never alone it is always followed by good works And Jeremiah was saying, like Jesus says, you can fool other people by putting on a show on Sunday. You can even fool the minister. Sometimes we're the easiest to fool because we tend to be quite forgiving people. But you cannot fool God. God sees the heart. God sees the whole life and God has a special hatred for religious hypocrisy. Now please hear this. Jeremiah just like Jesus was not condemning the repentant sinner you might be sitting there thinking I have areas of sin in my life maybe I'm the hypocrite who Jesus is condemning the mark of a true follower of Jesus is not that you are without sin the person who claims they are without sin is a liar and the truth of God is not in them and the mark of a true follower of Jesus is that our sin grieves us and we are repentant And we try to love God and our neighbour, we are driven to love God and our neighbour but even as we fail we come to God in honest repentance and seek his forgiveness. See the mark of a faithful Christian is ironically not that we claim that we are without sin, it's that we don't hide our sin, that's the mark of a faithful Christian, we repent of it. Jeremiah didn't want them to stop coming to the temple, he didn't want them to stop offering sacrifices what he wanted was that they would really mean it. What he wanted was that they would admit their sin, repent of it, and then actually seek to live God's way in their day-to-day life. So if you feel that you might be a hypocrite, the answer is not to throw your arms in the air and stop coming to church. The answer is not to stop reading your Bible and say, oh, I'm a hypocrite, I'll see you later. It's not to stop spending time in prayer. It's to be honest about it. It's to stop being a Pharisee and actually admit our sin to God and other people as appropriate. doesn't mean you've got to shout it from the rooftops. But the person who's truly repentant of their sin will share it with a Christian brother or sister. They will confess it to someone else and then they will seek help in living for Jesus. As I close, throughout history there have been certain times in certain places where there have been what gets called revivals or awakenings amongst the people of God. Uh, there were several in the book of Acts, when you read the book of Acts you see these, these amazing events that happened where the people in Ephesus for instance just all en masse decided to turn to Jesus, a massive crowd of people. Uh, but then the seventeen and 1800s there were revivals in England and in North America with preachers like the Wesleys and Whitfield and uh, Jonathan Edwards and we still sing hymns written by those guys in the 1900s in the 1910s there was a revival in Wales where massive numbers of people became Christians in the 1930s there was one in East Africa that's why the church is so strong in Kenya and Uganda and places like that because of those revivals that happened then here in Sydney there was something like that in 1959 when Billy Graham came here for the first time and thousands of people became Christians ironically at a race course Uh, (laughs) But the thing with all those revivals, when you study them as history, is that they often start in the church. They start with the people of God and what they start with is Christians repenting of their hypocrisy. Where they start is with Christians saying, I've been hiding, I've been a hypocrite and now I need to confess my sin. See, when God is at work by His Spirit through His Word, people put off their hypocrisy. People stop being Pharisees and pretending. And they say, how wonderful is God's love and God's mercy and God's grace that He could forgive a sinner like me. So I don't need to put on a front for you. I don't need to hide my sin. I just need to admit my sin and grasp the forgiveness I have in Jesus And then do you know the other mark of true revival? It's that people then get serious about putting off their sin and leading changed lives, because that shows true conversion. And in some of those places where revivals have happened, they've written history books about it, whole towns were reformed and started to care for the poor and started to show love for the outcast, because so many people were becoming Christians and their changed lives had a massive impact. Now you cannot manufacture a revival, it takes the work of God, as his word is preached but can I tell you I pray for it for us every week that is my prayer for us every week that there would be such a work of God by his spirit through his word that people who are hypocrites people who are Pharisees would throw it off and then God would do an amazing work through us interestingly though come back to Jeremiah chapter 7 just as we finish last point interestingly did you notice in verse 16 and the verses around there where God said that really amazing thing where he said don't bother praying for these people did you see that if you were paying careful attention I think it would shock you I hope it does God said do not even bother praying for a response from these people because they've had their chance they're just not listening it's very confronting I think when God says that about people when he says don't even bother praying but I just want to say to you that was a word to Jeremiah and not a word to us, we should pray for it, we should pray for it in our own lives and we should pray for it in each other's lives, we should pray that we would be so gripped by God and his grace that we would not be hypocrites and we would not be Pharisees putting on a show of religion but instead we would be people who are truly repentant, forgiven sinners, And then we should pray that we would be people who live out those lives of faithful obedience, not just when other brothers and sisters in Christ are watching on a Sunday, but in every decision we make and in every aspect of our lives on every day of the week. So let's pray that for one another right now. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this part of your word that is so confronting. And Father, we confess that at times we have been hypocrites. We confess that all too often we attempted to put on a show to pretend that we don't struggle with sin and just put on a front for other people and father we repent of this and are sorry for it and ask for your forgiveness and we pray that we as a church here would be so gripped by the truth of your gospel that we would confess our sin that we would not hide it from you or from others but instead we would confess it and seek to live authentic lives for you Help us to be people who are not just faithful on a Sunday, but instead people who are faithful right through the week. And Father, we pray that as people see the change in our lives, they might want to come to know the Saviour who we have come to know, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, friends, our next song is uh, called Take My Life. And the person whose life has been saved by Christ, who's repented, now has a new heart and is truly reorientated in the right direction. I want to encourage you to do something as we sing this song. Don't just say the words, but reflect on actually a a new uh, person's heart, someone who's been reorientated in the right direction, someone who wants to use all that they have uh, for the sake of Christ. So let's stand and sing and take my life.